Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The last time Congress renegotiated who could find asylum in the United States, it came in the aftermath of the fall of Saigon, when Southeast Asian refugees presented a moral imperative that forced changes to how Americans provided sanctuary. Now, as Afghan refugees continue to arrive after the fall of Kabul and amidst the continuing stream of people fleeing violence in the Americas, could this be a moment when our system changes again? And if so, how might we create a better system? Today, in the conclusion to our series on refugees and asylum, we'll talk with a variety of experts about how to improve the ways we provide humanitarian relief at our borders and inside our country. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. No one really seems to believe that the system by which the United States deals with distressed people requesting sanctuary in our country works very well. Yes, the Trump administration made things much more difficult for refugees, cutting admissions by 86 percent from 2016 to 2020. And yes, the Biden administration has kept many of these restrictions in place. But even before Donald Trump's ascendance, there were all kinds of problems. We accept so few refugees from afar that many see it as hopeless to go that route. Less than half a percent of refugees in a given year are resettled in countries like the U.S. So to request asylum, you must show up at the border. But then we do everything we can to prevent people from doing so. And if they do make it, they're told that they've done something wrong, when in reality, they're doing exactly what international law compels. What's their hope for a just decision? Right now, there's a backlog of 1.3 million cases in immigration court, a pile that's been building through three presidential administrations. We are not and have not been living up to our stated principles leaving desperate people to face violence, immiseration, police corruption, gang warfare, sexual and gender-based persecution. So we've assembled a panel of experts to talk about improvements that can be made to this system, small and technocratic, as well as large and philosophical. We're joined by David Fitzgerald. He's a professor of sociology and co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. He's also author of the book, Refuge Beyond Reach, How Rich Democracies Repel Asylum Seekers. Welcome, David. Thanks very much. We're also joined by Alex Norasta. He is the Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me. And we also have Bree Bernwanger. She is a Senior Immigrant Justice Attorney with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome, Bree. Thanks so much for having me. So let's just uh, go right to it. Do all three of you more or less agree that our current asylum policies in the U.S. have failed the people most in need of help? And if so, 
What's the part of it that, from your perspective, is most fundamentally broken? Let's start with you, Brie. Thanks so much, Alexis. Um, Yeah, our asylum system has failed asylum seekers, and it's failed them because it's been inextricably wrapped up in immigration enforcement for at least the last three presidential administrations, with the animating principle, as you alluded to in your introduction, as deterrence. We know that deterrence, first of all, just doesn't work with asylum seekers. When you are fleeing horrific violence, when you are fleeing for your life, there is no amount of deterrence that is going to stop you. And what we've seen in our policy is really a cruel race to the bottom in efforts to try to make things so painful and uncomfortable for people who come here that perhaps they will stay in the pain and fear uh, from which they're fleeing. And that's cruel policy, it's ineffective policy, and it's also, um, for reasons that we can talk about maybe when we get to some of the technocratic stuff, it's incredibly inefficient. It's a waste of resources. We're spending resources on hurting people instead of on trying to find a way to fairly process their claims. Um, And I think the last thing I'd say about that is there's really a fundamental assumption shift that needs to happen. our asylum policy is predicated on the idea that people shouldn't be coming here. And as you said at the introduction, people who are fleeing violence absolutely should be coming here. People who are fleeing persecution have a right to access our asylum and humanitarian protection system. We are enacting policy on a completely incorrect assumption that the violence and persecution in this hemisphere, for some reason, shouldn't qualify people. And we have to abandon that assumption and spend our resources giving people fair process if we want any of this to work. Yeah. When you're the U.S. government and you find yourself trying to figure out how you can make it worse to come to the border than to stay with the Salvadoran gang harassing you, um, you've got a very difficult and, and strange policy. Um, uh, Alex, let's go to you. Same same question. You know, is the system fundamentally broken? And if so, What's the sort of piece of it that is most in need of, of fixing? So the system is fundamentally flawed. It's disastrous. It's horrible for the people involved, and it's bad for the United States. I wouldn't call it broken because I think it's largely intended to be this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think broken implies, right, that it's not functioning the way that designers wanted or, or the other people involved wanted. And I think from the beginning, the refugee and asylum system in the U.S., the numbers have been too low. The restrictions have been too high. The definitions of persecution have been too constrained. They need to be a lot wider uh, to include many, many more problems that people face around the world. And it's been too inflexible from the very beginning. I mean, this system was designed, uh, you know, in the aftermath of World War II, after the horrible experiences with people fleeing um, fascist, Nazi, and other regimes around the world being caught up and sent back to these places where there was no asylum or refugee law, uh, sort of out of a sense of shame, um, as well as confronting the Cold War. They designed new systems, but they didn't go far enough back then. We are not going far enough today, and we should do everything we can to basically open it up, to make it much wider, to allow many more people in, and to remove a lot of the restrictions that they face, uh, both before they get here and once they get here. Yeah. I mean, we're talking like really uh, in the individual thousands of people is is kind of the number of people who are actually making it in. Um, These are tiny numbers in a country as large as and and populous as the U.S. Um, David uh, Fitzgerald, professor of sociology 
uh, at UC San Diego. Um, how about you? Systems fundamentally broken. Having looked at your book, I'm pretty sure the answer your answer to this is is yes, or or perhaps maybe not broken, but working in a way that hurts asylum seekers, perhaps working as intended. Yeah, I would have to agree with that characterization of working as intended. In some ways, it's a very cynical policy, at least until the pandemic was used as a pretext to keep out asylum seekers trying to cross at the border. There was a general understanding that if you made it to the U.S., uh, you could ask for asylum and you would get some kind of more or less fair hearing. You wouldn't simply be pushed back and, and returned to a country where you would face persecution. But then all kinds of steps were put into place deliberately to make it so that people who were likely to be asylum seekers could never reach the U.S. or Canada or European countries or Australia in order to be able to make one of those claims. So it was a catch-22 of saying, uh, we won't deport you if you're a refugee, but we will not let you come here to avoid being deported. And this is something that happens sometimes very dramatically. We can see um, images on TV of the way that governments like the US use their neighbors, such as Mexico, as buffer states to do a lot of the dirty work of migration control, if you will. Um, but most of this kind of effort to keep asylum seekers away from our borders happens very quietly uh, behind the scenes. It happens because we make it very difficult for people to get visas to travel legally if they're from one of the countries that has high rates of asylum seeking. So if you're from Afghanistan or from uh, Syria or South Sudan, for example, there are very few countries in the world that will let you travel without a visa. And that is done uh, deliberately. And there are many different steps that are taken, um, such as de facto deputizing, not in a legal sense, but de facto deputizing uh, the airline companies to do the work of control to keep someone who might ask for asylum in the US from ever being able to get on the plane and, and leave their country of origin or uh, a transit airport to try to reach the US to ask for asylum. So that's where, where most of the, the control happens is, is quietly behind the scenes. And the pernicious effect is that if you are fleeing violence, if you are fleeing persecution, there are very few places where you can safely and legally travel. The, the government has really deliberately shut down almost all of the legal paths to safety. Right. I mean, we're really funneling people to the border and then sort of acting surprised when that's where people like the southern border and acting surprised when people show up there. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's where your reform efforts have to begin with creating various kinds of mechanisms, various kinds of channels for people who uh, potentially do meet that uh, asylum criteria to travel safely, legally, without the kinds of, of risks to their physical safety, without the kinds of uh, spectacles on TV, that kind of chaos. Um, and, and we have models for, for how to make that work. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. What, what are those uh, models? Well, one of them is an idea called in-country processing. This is the idea that you don't just have to uh, be outside of your country of origin in order to uh, qualify as a, as a refugee. That's, that's the way that most countries do it. But in U.S. law, going back to 1980, there's a provision where we can decide that in certain cases, it's possible for people who are still in their countries of origin but facing 
persecution to apply to go to the U.S. from their home countries. And that's sometimes been applied on a, on a mass scale in uh, the Soviet Union, in Vietnam, and Romania, historically. There's still a program in Cuba, suspended because of the pandemic, but it's uh, otherwise an ongoing program for people to apply to reach the U.S. from, from their home country. It's been used in a much more limited way with bigger problems historically in Haiti. There's a very small program now in, in Central America. But these, these are programs that could be expanded because they meet a lot of qualifications that theoretically people on both left and right um, should want to see. It's a way to make sure that people who uh, participate in the programs really are refugees. They have been uh, screened. They meet that standard. They go through all of the kinds of uh, security vetting and so forth. Um, but it's a way for them to travel to the U.S. You know, without potentially being killed on route. Yeah. Why, why don't we already do it like that, if it sounds like so much better? You know, I think the main reason is that governments are always worried that um, if these programs are expanded, that they will call other people. There will be magnets for, for more people to, to try to take um, advantage of them, that they'll look like they are weak on immigration control. Bree was mentioning the way that immigration control becomes bound up in this question of protection for, for refugees, often to the detriment of, of achieving protection for, for people who are refugees. Um, so, you know, there, there are political reasons not to uh, do these. There are political reasons why the programs are often extremely small. Um, I'm going to have to leave it there. We're going to come back to this in a sec, though. We're talking about the future of U.S. asylum with David Fitzgerald, professor of sociology, co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. Alex uh, Norasta, he's director of immigration studies at Cato Institute. And Bree Bernwanger, she's a senior immigrant justice attorney with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. And we do want to hear from you. Do you have experience navigating the asylum system? Call now, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We're talking about the future of U.S. asylum with David Fitzgerald, the professor at UC San Diego, Alex Norasta, director of immigration studies at the Cato Institute, and Bree Bernwanger, a senior immigrant justice attorney with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. And we want to hear from you. Do you have experiences navigating the asylum system? What do you think needs to change about the U.S. approach to people seeking refuge here, given all that we've heard so far? Call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions, comments, your experiences with the asylum system to forum at kqed.org. Um, Bree, because you work with people who are sort of approaching this system just as an individual, um, I wanted you to run us through what this feels like for someone who's sort of arriving, seeking asylum and, and seeking your help. Like, what's the process that you're trying to go through and how well is it working right now? 
Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. And I, you know, of course, have never actually experienced what my clients have experienced. Um, I've borne witness to it, but I can't speak from their perspective. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally what I is that there is an effort to expel, dehumanize, and deny access to justice for particularly, so most of my clients have been uh, Central American or Mexican asylum seekers from this hemisphere, uh, particularly for that population. And what that looks like is, you know, approaching the border, whether they present themselves or cross. And I mean, as David said, what what I'm describing is the pre-expulsion um, framework. Now people are expelled at the border because we have, uh, under the pretense of public health, a uh, an unlawful expulsion policy. That this the- is Title 42, right? Yeah, it's called Title 42. Um, it's Trump-Biden policy now. Um, but before that, so the system as it was working before expulsion wasn't working. Um, people approach the border, are thrown into... Border Patrol, Yaleras, ice boxes, we're all very familiar at this point with what border detention looks like. We should be disgusted by it. It hasn't changed for decades. People are thrown into holding cells. They sleep on concrete floors. They don't have access to adequate food and water. They don't get medical treatment. They languish there um, with access to counsel, without any, really they're held incommunicado. Um, these conditions, our office has litigated a lawsuit over these conditions. They're not constitutional. There has been no political will to meaningfully change them. Um, after that, if there's detention space available in an ICE detention center, people are sent there. It's a jail. We spend our resources on jailing asylum seekers. They don't have a right to an attorney for free. They, If they can find an attorney who can come out to their far-flung detention center, uh, and pay them or find someone to take their case pro bono, they'll get representation. Um, for people who get out of detention, they are still stuck fighting their case in an adversarial proceeding in an immigration court, adjudicated by a judge who is not an independent, neutral judge. The judge is part of the executive branch. The attorney huh. general is the head of the executive office for immigration review. So we have this extremely politicized quote, air quote, court system. And I think the other thing I... I Can I I sub you there just for one sec, just to clarify something. So when you really bring someone to immigration court, like it is an actual adversarial proceeding. Like you're like, let this person in. And the government's like, no, keep this person out. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, if if they're lucky enough to have a lawyer, the lawyer will be making arguments for why they have a right to stay. But, and I think when you talk about the backlog that you mentioned at the outset, it's really important to recognize that that's because the government is fighting every single case and taking it to trial. That is a choice. The government does not have to send an ICE attorney in to fight every single case, seek the deportation of every single person who is in immigration court proceedings. That is not an efficient system. It's not a fair system. And that's a part of the reason we have this over a million case backlog. Why take every case to trial? That is a policy choice, and it's there are different choices available. So would it be fair to say that if we just change that adversarial system, change the, the sort of truth-finding process, that we might actually get much closer to uh, a system that can move people through at the pace that we need to? 
So I think there's one kind of assumption in your question that I'd, I'd kind of like to grab onto and challenge sure. a little bit is, um, you know, I'm, I understand that there's a desire for a system to move quickly and for cases to be processed and not, not sit in the system for years and years. But I also want to come back to, we're talking about asylum here. We're talking about cases in which if someone is deported wrongfully, they will face persecution, possibly torture, possibly death. Why are we more afraid of them waiting for a claim in the United States to make sure we get it right than deporting someone wrongfully? I'm not saying that you are incorporating that assumption into your question, but I do think it's not something that, you know, we make these assumptions that cases should move really quickly. Um, that's a real value statement. Why do we value getting people out quickly instead of getting it right? Going back to your question, which is, would a non-adversarial system be better? I think the answer to that is yes. I also think that there are a lot of other elements that I mentioned that make the system harmful and adversarial. So we have to abolish immigration detention for asylum seekers, for everyone else. It is a harmful, expensive, incredibly cruel system. We're spending resources on hurting people. That's what it does. People should have access. If there is an adversarial system, people should have access to attorneys. We are, again, dumping resources into ways of hurting asylum seekers, attempting to keep them from accessing their claims instead of investing in a system that is fair. You know, um, David Fitzgerald, your work does looks comparatively across the world at the way that people do this. Um, give us the evaluation of the U.S. system from that perspective. So, you know, there there are not a lot of uh, angels in this story. Um, we mentioned a race to the bottom, and and we do see uh, we we do see a lot of that. Um, that there are countries that are more generous on a per capita basis, in, in other words, thinking about the size of their populations when it comes to refugee resettlement, for example. So the U.S. has resettled a lot of uh, refugees. It's settled uh, about 5 million refugees since the end of World War II. But it's an enormous country. That's a long time period. On a per capita basis, those resettlements have been much higher in Canada and Australia. And those three countries historically, U.S., Canada, and Australia, have, uh, have been the major countries of refugee resettlement since um, 1980. Um, but as you mentioned in your intro, the refugee resettlement uh, slots were, were slashed quite dramatically under the Trump administration. They're being rebuilt now under Biden, but still we're talking about uh, less than half of a percent of the world's refugees are resettled in any country. Most refugee resettlement programs, there are more than 30 of them around the world, are quite symbolic, to be honest. They resettle just... Uh, you know, maybe a couple of hundred people a year to try to signal to an international audience that uh, the countries are generous in some kind of humanitarian way, but that doesn't really help the, the vast majority of the world's refugees who, who need a place of sanctuary. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's such a tough thing to, because the, the, the numbers mismatch here is really enormous. Uh, by by design, as your uh, as your book really shows that we are we're really trying to keep people away from the border. I want to add in um, Kevin from Oakland into the conversation. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go so ahead. My You're on the air. 
So our family migrated from the Philippines in the 1990s in a chain migration situation. And we go back and visit relatives and we realize how lucky we are. Um, but also now that we're here and we look at the big picture, and <clears throat> the big picture is 330 million Americans. We've been taking about a million Americans a year for a long time now. And the global population now is heading towards 8 billion. Uh, pandemic or no pandemic, we're headed towards 8 billion. I'm wondering if your talkers could describe how many people they think America can hold and uh, just where are we going and what is sustainable? I'm kind of surprised you don't have a, someone talking about sustainability in this conversation, actually. Well, let's talk uh, Alex Norasta from Cato Institute. Um, what's, your, what's your approach to this? So my approach to this is to take sort of the traditional American view from, uh, you know, the, the 19th century, which is if you are not a criminal, if you're not a national security threat, if you don't have a serious communicable disease, uh, then you should be able to live in the United States, to work here lawfully, and to eventually, if you want to, become a citizen. Um, we were hearing earlier about the, the asylum system, uh, the court procedures, and how you basically treat asylum seekers and immigrants like they're guilty until they're proven innocent. And I think it should be entirely reversed. I think the government should have to show that an individual does not have the right to come to the United States. It should be presumed that that person has the ability to, um, except in some, you know, very small minor circumstances. Now, in terms of the total number, you know, what's the optimum population for the United States? I don't think anybody can give you an exact number of what that should be. But the notion that most Americans want to hire and sell to or, or marry or otherwise deal with immigrants. Tens of millions or hundreds of millions of immigrants around the world want to deal with Americans. That's good enough. And if, they, if those relationships don't work out, if they don't want to deal with each other anymore, then immigration will stop. Immigration has stopped in the past, even when the U.S. had free immigration. Uh, it could stop in the future if U.S. has free immigration. Uh, but the idea that, you know, central planners or somebody in D.C. Or, or anybody else can tell you the optimal number is just crazy. I think that we really need to open it up and let people make these individual choices for themselves. Obviously, there's some uh, pushback here, too. A couple other uh, listener comments on this. I'm going to come to you, David. Richard writes, you know, there's several hundred million, very likely billion people who would come to the U.S. because of extreme poverty, for example, Haiti, spousal abuse, religious persecution or severe crime situation, Central America, global warming, etc. All of these would be admitted for asylum under the criteria suggested by your guest. This is simply too great a number for the U.S. to take in. Daniel uh, says we need to fix the countries that asylum seekers are coming from. We cannot be the haven for people fleeing from those countries. Lack of law enforcement and justice systems. Of course, the U.S. has had a role in destabilizing many places around the world as well. Arthur writes, the Haitians massing at the southern border were safe in Chile, where they were staying for several years. They are economic migrants. Why are we talking about them? Uh, David Fitzgerald, I love your sense of, you know, obviously you've heard this pushback before uh, in your work, I'm assuming. Um, and, and what's your response to it? Yeah, so in terms of the the, the first quote that you read from a, from a listener, you know, I think it's important to remember that we're talking specifically here about refugee policy, and refugee policy only applies to uh, a small subset of, of people who might be seeking to, to move. Um, by law, it's, and by, by treaties that the U.S. has signed, and, and by U.S. law as well, 
we're talking about people who are fleeing because if they're returned back to their country of origin, that they'll be persecuted because of their race, just who they are categorized as racially, of their religion, of their nationality, of the, of the uh, political opinion that they express, or their membership in a particular social group. Uh, they can also uh, claim asylum because if they're uh, returned to their country of origin, they would be tortured for any reason. So, you know, this is this is a small subset of the of the categories um, that the listener was was mentioning. So nobody has uh, a legal right to go to any other country and live there. But people do have a legal right not to be uh, deported, not to be refouled, to use the legal term, um, if they meet one of those asylum criteria. Now, the only way to know if someone is a refugee or not is to have an asylum screening to find out. But if there's an asylum screening to find out if it's a fair process, and at the end of the day, that person doesn't meet the standard, then legally, there's no impediment to them uh, being deported. We want to hear from you. Do you have experience navigating the asylum system? Call us now, 866-733-6786. Maybe it was your family. Maybe you yourself have gone through this process. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. David, I wanted to come back to you um, on sort of if you were put in touch if you're put in charge of this system, this asylum-seeking system, what are the first couple things that you would do? You'd allow people to sort of apply in country so that maybe we could stem some of the more uh, difficult migration routes. What are the other places where you could see? Would you make the visa system a little bit looser? Like what else are we talking here? Well, there's some other models that have been tried internationally that could be expanded. So another one is the idea of humanitarian corridors. These are sort of air bridges for asylum seekers in particular places, most prominently from uh, places like Syria and Yemen and Iraq, who are living in Lebanon as, as refugees. They're in Lebanon, but they don't have a legal refugee status there. Um, and so then they go through a preliminary screening in Lebanon at the embassy of mostly Italy or, or France. Um, to make sure that they fulfill any kind of security criteria, they pass a health screening, um, but they don't have a full asylum screening, which can take uh, some time. Um, but the, after passing that security and health screening, they fly to, say, Rome, and then they apply for asylum, and then they go through a full process uh, to decide whether or not they're eligible to stay and, and stay permanently. It's, it's something that's um, been experimented with in emergency situations. Um, that, that's also the kind of thing that could be uh, expanded. And then when it comes to actually processing folks who have reached uh, the U.S., you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, hiring more Border Patrol agents, uh, building the walls higher, creating fortifications and so forth. But I think there needs to be more resources put into hiring more immigration judges. There are only about 500 immigration judges in the entire U.S., um, we, we talked a little bit about the backlog, um, and, and we talked a little bit about the fact that those judges are not independent and that they could be made uh, an independent judiciary body that really is autonomous from the Department of Justice. 
Uh, but also, Who I think would do that. Would that require it. an act of Congress, or would that be something that just the Biden administration could just do on its own? You know, in my understanding, that would require an act of Congress, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that precise point. Got it. Got it. Um, Bree, from your perspective uh, on the ground, would these changes that David is suggesting would would those help as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I would come back to the question of do you hire more immigration judges or do you try to make the system less adversarial to begin with? Um, I think, you know, I definitely agree that kind of, as I said at the outset, investing in border enforcement is no response to protection seeking. It is a response that is, like I said, predicated on uh, an underlying assumption that people who are seeking protection here shouldn't be and i it's just not a good use of resources and not a response to asylum seekers we're talking about the future of u.s asylum with brie bernwanger she's a senior immigrant justice attorney with lawyers committee for civil rights of the san francisco bay area alex norasta he's director of immigration studies at the cato institute and david fitzgerald he's a professor of sociology and co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of U.S. asylum with David Fitzgerald, co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego, Alex Norasta, he's director of immigration studies at the Cato Institute, and Bree Bernwanger, a senior immigrant justice attorney with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. And I want to welcome Shamar from Oakland into our conversation. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for this conversation. Um, definitely hope we can still get some actual refugee voices here. Um, I'm actually a child of Afro-Caribbean immigrants. My father's actually from Haiti. Um, he came from a family with some resources. So we migrated uh, a while back, uh, you know, just under very different circumstances than we're seeing now. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit and introduce to the conversation this concept of brain and resource drain. Um, without even getting into the ways that the U.S. is often implicated in destabilizing the countries that folks are now fleeing from, um, you know, if everyone from those countries were able to migrate and escape, uh, you know, the various perils that they're facing, which others have already commented isn't really feasible, especially as the U.S. is struggling with its own issues, social and economic, um, what would be left of those countries that folks are fleeing from? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do we know about remittances? And if that's a fair trade, you know, we're taking the best and brightest, the most capable, the most resourceful people from these countries who are actually able to escape and, you know, go through these treacherous journeys, do incredible things that most of us in America couldn't actually do. Like if we had to escape, a lot of us would be stuck. 
Um, you know, so what do we know about that? And can we talk a little bit more about just global development and just not centering the U.S. in this conversation? It seems like, you know, we have a lot to gain, obviously, from taking in these folks, especially with our birth rate and all these other things. But, you know, we're taking in, for example, black immigrants who might actually have a better stake, you know, in countries that aren't plagued by, you know, systemic racism. Um, you know, they'll come to the U.S. and they may be able to get a little farther in the immediate term than they would in their home countries. And that's certainly true for my family. And I thank my dad for, you know, creating opportunities for me and my brothers and sisters here in the U.S. But, you know, we're only going to get so far in the U.S. And, and I think about what, what's going to happen to Haiti. This is a really uh, interesting point. I really appreciate you uh, giving us a call, Shamar. That's uh, Alex Naresta. I, I think this is actually an interesting one for you because, you know, I, I, at least as I understand your position, it's basically like make the borders as open to people as it is already to capital. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. and so in this case, do you worry about that kind of uh, brain drain or is it more a case where you just go, well, listen, if that's where the incentives are for individual people, then that's fine? Uh, definitely the latter. I mean, I'm not worried about brain drain. What I'm worried about are the hundreds of millions of people around the world trapped in unbelievable poverty with no ability to change their circumstances in their own country. They could change them by moving to the United States where they make us wealthier. But the biggest beneficiaries are the immigrants themselves. Just to give you an example about Haiti, somebody who comes to the United States from Haiti who has a high school degree can expect a tenfold increase in their income, even accounting for the cost of living being higher in the United States. That's a tenfold increase. From our perspective, you know, as, as Native-born Americans, as people who grew up here or who, or, or who have lived here for most of our lives, that is an almost unbelievable gain. And any complaints that people have about, about brain drain, about uh, maybe there's going to be a few fewer people in Haiti who have a lower level of education is just insignificant compared to that enormous gain, right? Like, I'm not interested in countries becoming rich because I want an arbitrary political boundary, you know, or area to have a high GDP. I'm interested in economic growth because it pulls individual people out of poverty, that's the great benefit of it, right? And what we do is when we take a look around the world at places that allow more immigration in, it actually incentivizes people in poorer countries to get more education, to acquire more skills because they have a better chance of leaving. And the net effect basically around the world is that there's really not much evidence of brain drain because it gives an incentive of people to improve their skills, improve their human capital. But even if there were, I don't think that would change the calculation here. I don't think that would change the calculus. Really, it's just, uh, you know, this is one of those issues where, you know, depending on the, the perspective uh, where, where you're coming from in the world, as well as sort of what you assume the sort of background system to be, um, it can be really, it can, it can look really different. So thank you for that call, Shamar. I'd, I'd like to bring in um, Pankaj from San Francisco into the conversation. Welcome. Hi there, it's Pankaj, and I'm an immigrant as well. I immigrated to the country 30 years ago um, through the work route. And I just have uh, three quick points uh, slash questions. You know, one is that uh, protecting our borders um, is uh, what, what we are doing, right? So, so to we, we, people should have a right or people have a right to get in. But really, uh, you know, we are working because what happens is once we get too many immigrants, there's a perception 
of fewer jobs for citizens and then um, you know racism also increases and we see that all the time the other thing is that um, you know people have no rights to economic refugee status you know it's purely political so you know why doesn't any san francisco press member bring that up and then the last thing is that if people are seeking political refuge why do they have to cross deserts and why do they have to travel oceans to get to the united states I mean, what's wrong with the policy of seek refuge in the country next door to you? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for your uh, comment. Um, David Fitzgerald, I, I want to, this is actually one of the crucial issues uh, in this entire system, which is the kind of what seems to me a somewhat fuzzy boundary between people who are fleeing political violence, who are fleeing immiseration, and people who are, are what are termed economic migrants. Does it make sense in our current world, particularly when we can look a little bit ahead and see that climate change will create a whole new kind of type and, and, and variety of refugee, does it make sense to maintain that distinction? Well, pe- people always have many reasons, or they often have many reasons to move. Um, you know, I'm Irish American. A lot of Irish Americans came to this country in the mid-19th century because of the famine the famine had some political reasons. So that's it's a combination of both uh, political and economic reasons there. A lot of uh, Jewish Americans who were fleeing the pogroms in uh, late 19th century Russia uh, could tell a, a story that has some similarities. So the, the idea of people leaving because of both political persecution as well as, as economic harm has always been with us. That's, it's not a new issue, but it is an important issue what the asylum system is designed to do is not to root out people who might have some kind of economic interest as well. The asylum system is designed to make sure that people who will be persecuted if they're returned, based on those, those five grounds that I mentioned earlier, um, will, will receive a place of sanctuary. Um, but we do know that people have always, including people leaving the, the former uh, communist bloc countries, right? People fleeing East Germany, for example, or people fleeing Hungary after the revolution, you know, they had a mix. According to the studies at the time, they had a mix of motivations to leave, but we gave them sanctuary because giving sanctuary, affording sanctuary, it's not just about the experience of the asylum seeker. It's also expressive of, of our values. It's about us. It's about us as a, as a political community who have decided that it is illegitimate to persecute people just because of their race or just because of the religion. And it's a way to make a public international stand against those kinds of policies and to, to n- shame and name the governments uh, who persecute their own people. Yeah. And I do. Yeah. I, I do want to remind people that the U.S. has, in fact, committed in different international conventions. We talked about this in earlier shows of this series to agreeing to the idea of asylum and agreeing to the idea of accepting refugees. And I think one thing that David's work really shows is this enormous gap between our stated values. This is kind of what I, I think is really tough. We've stated, we've said, we don't want this. We don't want people to face these conditions. And then we force people to stay in and face those conditions. Um, Bree, I, I wanted to come to you on the same question of um, economic migrants versus you know, uh, fleeing violence. With the people that you end up working with, do you see those things as disentanglable or is it in fact poverty one of the components uh, that makes them uh, so susceptible to violence of other kinds? Yeah, I appreciate the question. 
and I also want to say, I think um, there has been a lot of, a lot of sort of political use of asylum seekers as pawns over the years and, and in kind of a dog whistling way. And I think the term economic migrants itself is an example of that. Um, it was applied to Haitian migrants in the 1980s, Haitian asylum seekers. And, you know, we heard from a caller uh, calling Haitian asylum seekers economic migrants now. Um, I think anyone who's even a little bit familiar with the situation in Haiti knows that it's going through incredible political turmoil uh, and incredible politically motivated violence, as well as, you know, a number of other um, really serious natural disaster related issues. And the notion that someone couldn't appropriately be a uh, an asylum seeker under one of the five protected grounds is an assumption that's totally unrooted in the facts. I think it's it shouldn't be surprising that people who have experienced persecution in their home countries might also experience economic hardship. And as David said, you know, people have many reasons for migrating. The asylum system is built on identifying people who have a well-founded fear of persecution. It's really irrelevant to an asylum claim, whether you are living in poverty, whether you are not living in poverty, the question is whether you have a well-founded fear. And I think what I would ask, you know, all of us to sort of do, and, and I've heard some of this in the calls, is examine what our fear is of people seeking protection here. You know, I heard in some of the questions an assumption that there is some like maximum number, um, an assumption that people are coming here for reasons that aren't valid even though we know what's happening in Haiti, we know what's happening in Central America, we know people are suffering extraordinary violence. And, and I think like the subtext to what I'm saying is our immigration system is deeply rooted in white supremacy and in immigration law, like elsewhere in the American system, we do see a huge disconnect in our stated values and in the values that our policy actually embodies. And that disconnect is rooted in white supremacy and a fear of people of color. And those are the people who our policies have been keeping out. And I, I think it, it's important to say it because I think it informs a lot of the assumptions that animate, you know, some of the, uh, uh, the questions that we've heard in some of them. Yeah, can you talk about how that has been embedded into the actual structures of the system, like we heard earlier in the week, for example, that um, for a very long time, Haitian migrants in particular were, ex were received asylum at lower rates uh, than other folks? Yeah, I think the example of Haitian asylum seekers and refugees is an incredibly powerful indictment of the racism in our system. But it goes back to the beginning. I mean, the first naturalization law in the U.S., made naturalization available to free white people. Um, one of the early immigration enforcement laws was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, it specifically excluded people because of their national origin and rooted in it was a lot of anti-Chinese, uh, incredibly like bone-chillingly racist sentiments and stereotypes. Um, and the case of Haitian asylum seekers um, is another is another example. Um, as David mentioned, uh, a lot of U.S. asylum and refugee policy that has sort of, I think, until recently really been under the radar is our effort to move our borders, 
to really like use other countries, use, um, we do it in Mexico. And in the 1980s, we did it in, uh, we interdicted, we, we stopped boats with Haitian migrants on them because we did not want them to be able to reach the border and seek asylum. Um, that was a policy that is rooted in anti-Blackness and we're seeing it again now. Uh, at the same time, we, you know, we made it a lot easier for Cubans to seek protection here. I know that you guys talked about this a lot on your Monday conversation as well. And a pol- that policy has changed though, right? Yeah. Well, the Cuban Adjustment Act is still good law, but uh, there are, um, it relies on people being paroled into the country and uh, there, not all Cubans are paroled into the country, but it's still, it's still good law. And I think the underlying point is we are making policy choices that are rooted in values and white supremacy has been an animating value of the immigration system for a long time. I um, want to get to some more of the comments that have come in. Um, one attorney uh, who's worked on asylum cases says, I've worked as a volunteer attorney on asylum cases for children. First, the backlog of cases is dismaying. Getting one of these cases resolved can take months to years. The process requires you to explain why you need asylum. Having these clients, some of them children, recount the trauma they have experienced ranging from beatings, death threats, torture of family members, and then having to tell them their request was denied, is dispiriting. The court is telling them your trauma was not enough. It's beyond heartbreaking. Michael writes, I was wondering how many people around the world would be eligible to come to the U.S. under various legal scenarios and what it would look like logistically if they all just showed up. It's not to say that's ever going to happen, but I could imagine a billion people might have claimed uh, asylum in the U.S. Um Jerry writes, challenging um, some other things that we've heard. Your guest keeps claiming that every asylum seeker returned to their country of origin is facing certain death, an idea that essentially asserts that every asylum is legitimate and not one of them is false or untrue. So where are the stories documenting these hundreds of thousands of deaths? Answer, they don't exist. The vast majority of asylum claims are pretext for garden variety attempts to migrate for economic reasons. And I would just call your attention back to uh, Bree's previous comments around these kinds of comments, which are just sort of what are people really uh, afraid of (laughs) people migrating? And um, it strikes me not even really sure what to say about that comment. Um, Before we go, uh, David Fitzgerald, I wanted you to give us uh, one last look at at some maybe technocratic changes that we could make like immediately that wouldn't require acts of Congress that would make things better for people who are showing up here. Well, if I could cheat and suggest one thing that I think would require Congress to act, but that I think we, we could see people on different sides of the political spectrum come on board with, it's um, having a more serious uh, reception program for refugees who have been resettled in the U.S., refugees who've been through that two-year security screening, everyone has agreed that they're, that they're refugees, um, but when they come, there's only about 220, sorry, $2,225 per refugee to fund their first three months in the US. And only about half of it actually goes directly to the refugee. So that's an extremely small amount of money. Um, It's impossible to really move quickly to self-sufficiency when you have such meager benefits. They haven't been readjusted since about 2010 in any meaningful way. So that means that inflation, especially rents, are are quickly outstripping 
the, um, the ability of, of refugees to, to pay for those basic costs. The other thing that's unusual internationally is that the US charges uh, refugees for repaying their airfare. Hmm. So people who, we, again, we've all agreed that they're refugees, they're, they're, they're not quote unquote simply economic migrants, um, but they have to repay their, their airfare. So that means that people who are trying to get back on their feet end up in this incredible debt hole from the moment they step onto U.S. soil. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That's a great suggestion. We've been discussing the future of U.S. asylum with David Fitzgerald. He's a professor of sociology and co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. We've also been talking with Alex Norasta. He's director of immigration studies at the Cato Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Bree Bernwanger, she's a senior immigrant justice attorney with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. And thank you so much uh, to all of our callers as well. Shamar, I really appreciated your call in particular. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.